Devoncast from Radio X. It's Devoncast time again. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for choosing to uh, to, to choose us as your podcast of choice for your dog walk or your drive into work. Uh, we'll be talking politics. We'll be talking big issues. We'll be talking the things that affect you across Devon. The small issues as well, the little things that uh, that you need to know about local government politics as well. I'm Guy Henderson. And I'm Ali Stevenson. Actually, as we're recording this podcast, there's a situation in Plymouth which shows you just how important local councils are to the people they serve. A big exclusion zone has gone up around the site of an unexploded wartime bomb in Keyham. Uh, and the council's having to look out for hundreds of people who've had to temporarily leave their homes while the experts deal with the uh, with the bomb. It's an unexploded World War II bomb. Uh, councils matter, and right now Plymouth City Council is stepping up to do its bit. Plymouth, uh, Plymouth, one of your councils, Ali. They've they've had to pull out all the stops on this, haven't they? They certainly have. Yes, they've they've opened up some community centres and uh, the life centre in Plymouth to um, accommodate all these people and uh, uh, you know laying on lots of things for them including toothpaste and whatnot um yeah people have have gone to get their pets and and you know obviously they're very precious to them so um yeah everybody's being looked after at the moment so there's a very big brilliant people don't realize what a huge role their councils play in their lives but uh, down at Keyham they're doing that right now they certainly are uh what have we got for you on the podcast this week we've got police station front desks reopening all over the place exeter's active streets trial which continues to polarize opinion in the city and we're off to the theater well you're off to the theater ali you've been talking to some uh, some performers uh, with a theater show coming up there are concerns over the care of plymouth's children Another new prospective parliamentary candidate's been chosen with an election in the offing. Could be as early as May, you know, I reckon. We meet a man walking all the way to Surrey, hear from concerned parents at County Hall and pay tribute to the leading light of a local council. It's all coming up on this packed edition of Devoncast. I think we should start with the police stations. You've been out this morning, you've been at Oakhampton this morning. I have, yeah. Oakhampton, back to life with uh, opening its doors to the public, which is is great news. Um, It's like a rabbit warren in there, actually. I got completely lost, to be honest. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was so nice. A lovely, positive atmosphere in there. Um, I think things are changing. Let's go. I mean, the, all the police station front desks closed back in the day. Um, we used to visit them as young reporters. We used to go and talk to the desk sergeant about what had been yeah. going on overnight. Yeah. Um, it was possible just to walk into a police station then, but they all closed over the years. Now they're busy opening them up again. The first one was Newquay in 2020, followed by Tiverton, Newton Abbott, Truro, Falmouth, Penzance and Bude in 21 and 22. Since last October, Oakhampton, where you've been this morning, Ilfracombe, Honiton, Kingsbridge, Devonport and Lou have opened. Uh, the Police and Crime Commissioner, Alison Hernandez, plans to open offices in Exeter, Tavistock, Ivybridge and Liscard by next year. And there's plans for one in Exmouth as well. Uh, they're also in progress without actually having a date on them. But uh, Ali, tell us a little bit, set the scene for us for the ribbon cutting this morning at Oakhampton. Okay, well, it was raining a lot, so, <laughs> so, so there's, a bit, it of, there's a bit of a soundtrack going on there. Um, but yes, uh, lots of police officers, lots of members of the community invited along, um, and um, Alison Hernandez was really keen. She's, you know, she's been everywhere this week, opening stations, and uh, she was in her element, to be honest, out on a road trip with um, with her police police officers yeah. and and uh, press team. Uh, so yes, yeah, so um, I I had a 
quick gander of what was going on there and uh, here we go. And you've been talking to who on, on the way? Uh, Bob Tolly. I'll introduce him on the, um, on the audio. I'm with Bob Tolly, a town councillor and a former mayor and a former police officer. So um, you would know how important it is to be face to face with the public. So how important is this opening the front inquiry office today? Uh, I think it's crucial to get back to where we were before uh, in my day. Um, we've been lacking face-to-face -face communication and I think this is a, a right step in the right direction to sort of reinforce the police and community connection. Um, and apparently this is one of the oldest stations and it's been shut for a long, long time. So how is it being perceived in the community? It's been here for 30 years, this police station. Um, but you very rarely used to see the, um, the results of the fact that it was here. They have a lot of, it's centralised for a lot of other aspects of policing, but not necessarily the community bit. So um, it, they've been aware it's been here, more so, uh, but we've we lost the front office, the old police station, used to be right in the middle of town. So now they've... Um, opened it up and I'm sure it'd be a lot better they've made it parking before you had to go in off the main street, they've developed it so that disabled people can come in the back and park uh, other people can visit from the rear now so it's a lot safer to stop I appreciate some people don't want to use online services or even phone they'd rather mm. talk to a police officer so do you think it's going to give amazing reassurance to community now? I think it will. I'm sure it used to before. It will uh, put the caller's mind at rest and they actually speak to somebody and it would save the, the police force in some ways because they can explain the situation and it may not need, require a police attendance or whatever. So they, they can sort of outsource, stop it or do something with it. So it's, um, I think it's a useful, useful tool to have. Bob Tolley there speaking at the opening this morning of the new Oakhampton uh, front desk, I suppose, is the best way to describe it, isn't it? I think people are going to take to this, aren't they? I think they are, yeah. I think, you know, people want to talk to somebody, don't they? Um, mm. You know, it's fair enough ringing somebody and getting put on hold and, you know, waiting and, and also sending an email. But to actually put over what you're really feeling or what you've seen, I think, seeing someone face to face you can do that so much better and it's i mean it's become quite a drive for alison hernandez hasn't it i mean they, they all these front desks closed years ago one by one as as policing changed mm. but it's become quite a crusade for her hasn't it to um to get it back again yeah certainly has and it, also it's what people wanted uh, you know when they did a survey that was what people wanted to see how they wanted their council tax you know spent on that sort of thing so um i, I think it is you know she's responding to what people want Let's, uh, let's hear from uh, the Police and Crime Commissioner, Alison Hernandez, then. Here she is being interviewed by my old boss, Patrick Felvin, uh, who's now part of the Commissioner's media team. Commissioner, you've decided to invest in reopening 18 police inquiry desks across Devon and Cornwall. Can you explain why you took that decision? Well, many years ago, in 2016, when I first stood for election, I made a promise that I would review police station closures. Now, to get the money right, the funding right, and to get everything lined up, it's taken me four years before I could open the first one in Newquay in 2020. 
but it was a promise that I made back in 2016, nearly eight years ago. And um, can you explain the different phases and which ones have been opened when? So one of the biggest things for me at the moment is people are paying more in their council tax and they want to see tangible investments in policing in their communities. And that's why we've opened so many and we're making such a difference to that access to local policing. It's been done in a range of phases so that we can financially make sure it's sustainable because we don't want to be closing these stations like has happened in the past. And I can tell you all the different phases that we've got. So phase one, as I said, in 2020 was Newquay Police Station front desk. And that was um, our first attempt to open one full time. Then we've opened another six and that was Newton Abbott, Penzance, Bude, Tiverton, Truro and Falmouth. And um, Truro was already there as part of a council building, but they completely closed in Covid and did not reopen the council in the same way. So we made sure that Truro still had somewhere for people to go. And phase three was Honiton, Kingsbridge, Loo, Oakhampton, Ilfracombe and Devonport. And again, there's a few things here. So Devonport is in the city of Plymouth, which is the only city that has three police station inquiry offices. And one of the reasons for opening that was to support that city after this terrible Keyham tragedy that happened uh, and to make sure that we are really supporting people in Plymouth to come forward and report crime. And then our last phase, which we've yet to open but I've committed to, is Liscard, Exeter City Centre, Ivy Bridge, Tavistock and when I get that chance to build Exmouth Police Station and we've done our BAT survey and we've logged the planning application, there will be a front desk in Exmouth. So we have really tried to get accessible policing to people and show a tangible support to our communities that they can come and report crime and they can come and seek advice. So on that subject, what can people expect when they go into these environments and what can they do at a police inquiry desk? I think one of the most important things is to say the police do want to hear from you, they do want to listen to you and they will take you seriously. So if you've got a crime that you need to report to policing and you might be distressed at the time or it may have happened in the past and you want to come forward, there are people that are there to listen to you and make sure that they understand how they can help you. And there's a few ways in which they will. One is by helping make sure that the crime is recorded, but also making sure that you get some victim support so you're not left on your own uh, worrying about what's happening. So I, I fund quite a lot of millions of pounds actually into victim support and that's what that's going to be available to people if they pop into a station but they also might want to tell someone something that's going on in their community that they're worried about some intelligence if you like on crime that's happening in their community and those uh, police inquiry office staff will be able to pass that on to police officers to be aware of so there's there's quite a few things just in terms of the crime side but there's also a few things in terms of the support side for individuals. And I'm sure, as we find on the 101 phone lines, that policing will be there to signpost to other services, to other agencies that will be able to help people. That was Alison Hernandez, the police crime, police and crime commissioner, um, talking about the opening of the new police station. Still to come on this Devoncast, we'll be talking about the exit of low traffic neighbourhoods, a man and his marathons, a new parliamentary candidate, protests at County Hall and uh, some interesting opinions on uh, placements for children in Plymouth. But first, Ali, you're taking us to the theatre. 
I am, yeah. So I, I don't know if anyone remembers the artist. They may well do because it won several Oscars 11 years ago. Um, it's a, a black and white masterpiece, basically, about a, a matinee idol from the silent era who sees his career fading with the advent of the talkie movies in the 1920s. Um, the film was hugely po popular um, and now it's been adapted for the stage. Um, and whilst the exact detail of how that has been done is under wraps for the time being, all will be revealed at the World Theatre premiere which will take place at Plymouth Theatre Royal in April. Excited? Yeah. Oh, I'd quite like to see that. Yeah, I think it's going to be amazing. So the, the theatre production is, is in safe hands with Gary Wilmot, who's, who's been treading the boards for several decades. Um, he'll be playing film boss Al Zimmer, um, Broadway lead and former New York City Ballet principal dancer Robbie Fairchild is playing film star George Valentin. But the show will introduce Brianna Craig in her first lead role as Peppy Miller, Valentin's love interest. Um, and she's a rising star in the talkies in, in this show so director drew mcconey called brianna his secret weapon and an exceptional talent i caught up with her and asked her how she felt when she got the role i think i guess terrifying was um, definitely how i felt when i was um kind of given the the opportunity when i was told that i was going to um be you know uh, portraying this role and being the first kind of person to take it on stage um however it's like it's the most grateful i think i've ever felt to you know to embark on anything because um it's so special i think the movie is so beautiful and, and obviously had its amazing gorgeous success um but doing a silent film in black and white on stage obviously comes with all these questions um in terms of how are we going to do this how um you know are we going to be black and white scale are we going to speak are we not but that's kind of the beauty of it that we're using theater as a medium to kind of um explore all the opportunities that only um, theatre provides so it's the most creative process I've ever been a part of and I just feel so very lucky and so grateful um, because jobs like this don't come around often and to get to do this um, it's kind of my first leading role in a in a show is just such a gift I feel like the luckiest girl ever and how did you get the role how did it come about so um, I had this audition that came through as they all do you know it said the artist uh, with Drew McConey and I said sign me up because um i've been going to drew's classes for a, a, a long time um since i'd finished my training and he's just someone i've idolized my whole life and the company the mcconey company um have been you know dream job level for me so i went along to the audition and you know we started the the audition with class with a warm-up and that does not happen in normal um audition processes there's no care for you know prepping you feeling that you're part of a company but this was this was very different so already i felt a kind of um collective energy and almost like a collaboration and care from the the team that were auditioning and in about three hours we did every kind of um skill and discipline that you could imagine um you know singing dancing all styles of dancing tap like a ballet solo jazz um shoes were on off on off then we had to do an acting scene we had to sing um and it was everything that i love if i could have you know asked for my favorite kind of in my dream audition setting that would have been it it was all the things i love to do so i was thrilled so i thought if anything that was just a great day but yeah then uh, i got an offer to come along to the workshop and, and start exploring what this piece could be and we yeah went, did our first workshop and it was just so so exciting and so creative and so special 
So how does it feel to be performing alongside the, the likes of great legends like Gary Wilmot, who, uh, who's had 40 years in the industry and performed everything from Pantomime Dame to Feeds um, in Me and My Girl and Wicked. And then you've got uh, Robbie Fairchild, the American dancer and actor who's, um, who's attracted international acclaim. I was on the phone to Drew a couple of days before the first workshop and he said, oh, you know who's playing George Valentin? And I said, no. And he said, oh, it's Robbie Fairchild. And I nearly collapsed in the street because <laughs> he is, you know, such a, a legend and um, iconic figure in my sphere of, um, of in my world. And I, I just never thought that we'd ever get the opportunity to cross paths. So to be working with someone like him is just the most incredible gift. And um, he's so giving and he's so um, patient and lovely and fun. He, he really just is, um, he lives up to the expectations. You put these people on pedestals, and which can be dangerous, but when you meet them and they're just as special as you imagine, if not more, um, it really is such a treat. And then Gary, actually, I'd worked with him prior in a pantomime, the big famous uh, London play in pantomime that he does every year and he's wonderful in. Um, and I was one of the ensemble dancers in that. So I'd already got a glimpse of the Gary Wilmot experience um and let me tell you it's an experience he's such fun and again so giving and so um respectful and um will sit and talk to you and give you his time when these people they don't need to when you're talking to little old me <laughs> it can feel really um daunting for me talking to all these people but when they just give themselves over to you and you realize they're just really good people at the heart of it it's so wonderful that was Brianna Craig, who stars in The Artist at the Theatre Royal Plymouth in April. Um, so, yeah, we're all excited about seeing that show and seeing how they're actually going to adapt it. Um, but, Guy, you've been uh, looking a little, little bit more about traffic going on in Exeter. Traffic in Exeter. You can't seem to keep the Exeter Active Streets trial scheme out of the news. And this week, I've seen it right back up in the headlines again. Uh, we started with human bollards in Ladysmith Road and moved on to some interesting questions being asked at the City Council's meeting in the Guildhall the other night. I spoke to Casper Hughes, who supports the Low Traffic Neighbourhood Trials in Whipton and Hevertree, and to Ian Frankham, who very much doesn't. Uh, first, on his phone, by the way, which is why it sounds the way it does, on his phone, here's Mr Hughes speaking just after the first of this week's protests, explaining how it all went. There was lots of support, um, lots of very supportive parents, um, even... even a supportive taxi driver, actually, who uh, stopped to thank us. Um, there were about 70 vehicles were turned around, or 70 vehicles turned around, I should say, um, and uh, there was some inevitable, inevitably angry residents and parents as well. 70 vehicles this morning would have, would have gone through in an hour and a half. 70 additional vehicles on that tiny little road is going to make, this, make it far, far more dangerous. There will be people enforcing the bus gate both um, every morning, so between half past seven and nine o'clock, and uh, in the evening from three till till uh, the school run finishes. What was really, really lovely this morning was watching watching kids on their scooters getting to school. You know, and it, it needs to be safe for them to be able to do that. And the best way to make it safe, of course, is to remove the drivers from the road outside, um, the three drivers. And... Um, that's that's exactly what they if this trial if this bus game was being enforced properly by the by the local police service and the um council then the trial could finish and we could get we would understand the safety benefits that having streets that aren't clogged up with cars 
brings yeah. to everybody going to school. It shouldn't be for a group of, of, of local parents and residents to police this bus gate. No, it's, it's the, it's, you know, the, the council have decided on putting this scheme in, um, having watched many other schemes around the country uh, be uh, make the roads a lot safer. And the police knew about it and should be enforcing it. OK, next is Mr Frankham, who used one of the City Council's public question time slots to ask about pollution data. Uh, I asked him afterwards how the campaign was going. We've had some encouraging signs, in all fairness, uh, from both city councillors and county councillors. And uh, I do believe now that the community, the local community, is uh, beginning to get listened to in relation to some of the angst and some of the problems that the LTNs occurred. The data's helped, obviously. Um, you know, Devon County Council have proven that arterial roads are now busier. Uh, from my point of view, I believe that means that pollution's going to be uh, uh, an issue, and that's why I asked the questions I did today. Uh, we want that data because um, it might be fine for a few people in a couple of streets in Hebbetry to benefit from perhaps quieter streets. But if, that, if that's the expense of a wider community, including businesses, then obviously it's not doing the uh, job that it was designed to do. Now, you were talking in the council meeting about getting hold of the pollution data. Councillor did say that uh, it would normally be published in September, but he would he seemed to indicate that he would do what he could to get it earlier for you. Was that good news? Yeah, I guess it was. Um, the, the new monitors are actually real-time, so they do give um, data uh, constantly. It's the analysis of that that I'd like. Uh, I'd like that reported back to Devon County because it does shape their decision-making, and particularly the HATOP committee, because uh, it is a key measure. Obviously, if they're uh, going to increase pollution in arterial roads and increase traffic, then it just proves that's another of the 10 measures that is not working. And this week's development, of course, has been the human bollard protest in Lady Smith Road. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I think I understand the ethos uh, around making it safer, but I think what they've done is prove that it's actually not very safe in Lady Smith Road now. Um, there never used to be these types of issues where cars are trying to turn. Um, people and cars is, is not a good mix, obviously. So I wonder if the two sides are beginning to edge slightly closer together on that one. Wherever you put a traffic story, it's happened in Paynton, it's happened in Totnes, it's happened in all kinds of places. You have to come to a solution eventually. And it's just that they're nowhere near there yet. But I think everybody has kind of agreed on the fact that traffic needs to decrease. Mm, no, nobody's that arguing that. Uh, but it's, it's the disagreement is how to do it. It and is. when to do it. But I think the good thing is it's giving them time to debate it and come up with different yeah. solutions. And, and it's usually change. It's it's the actual change that people don't like. So, you know, it, it give them a bit of time and give them all a chance to air their views and, yeah. and maybe, you know, something good will come out of it. And the bottom line, surely, if to get people out of their cars, you need better, mm. cheaper and more efficient public transport. Oh, you do. You when you really have a thing... If you go to London now and, and you think, I'll go on the train because mm. it's greener, it's less stress for me, it's less mm. traffic on the road, it's less pollution, it costs maybe three times as much as a tank of petrol to go yeah. up to London on the train. Yeah, yeah. And that's the big stumbling block, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, bus transport is far cheaper, of course. Two pounds anywhere you want to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and you can go to London <laughs> for 15 quid on the bus. Um, that's true. That's a good yeah, point, actually. Um, I think... I think bus transport is the way forward and uh, you know there's loads to be done within cities yeah um, I would love to travel more on a bus but uh, it's just not an option no. out in my neck of the woods <laughs>
Okay, still to come on Devoncast, we talk about a new parliamentary candidate, we talk about protests at count and children's placements. We've also got a tribute to um, a, a, a real stalwart of a local council. Uh, but first, our moving reporter Honey Forty has been out uh, and about again, this time being a remarkable man who's planning a remarkable mission. Jake Wood, who's a director at Seawood Yachts and Chandlery in Exmouth and Torquay, uh, describes how he'll be walking six marathons in six days to raise money for charity after the loss of his stepfather. Here he is talking to Honey Forty. Could you tell me about what you're planning to do, Jake? Yeah, I'm going to be um, walking six marathons in six consecutive days from Ladrum Bay to Farnham in Surrey. Um, it's all part of raising funds Blood Cancer UK and Phyllis Tuckwell um, Hospice, which is in memory of my stepdad, who sadly passed away in June of last year. So is raising money your only goal or is it also raising awareness? I think very much sort of a bit of both, um, raising as much funds as possible and raising awareness. I think I've seen sort of both charities really support my mum when she was going through, um, obviously looking after him and caring for him as such. And even even after he, he passed away, but also the support that they gave to him during the, the period of illness as well was, was invaluable for, for him and, and for her. So it's, it's a little bit of both from that side. How much training does something like this require? To be honest, I'm just trying to walk sort of three, four hours most weekends and then also getting some sort of longer 20 to 26. To be honest, it's it's just getting used to things like the walking boots and trying to get the distance um, in my legs. How did you come up with the idea to commemorate your dad, your stepdad in this way? So I've done cycling events um, in the past where I've done that sort of distance. And to be fair, I was sort of thinking about doing the route as a cycle. But then the, the idea of walking and allowing sort of family members and friends to come along and join me for a few miles here and there really felt like kind of a, a good option for me. Um, and also the tough part of having to do it sort of day after day, I just, I really wanted to put a challenge together that was different and something that I hadn't done before personally, really kind of test myself as well as, um, you know, to raise to raise as much money as I could for, for charity. Is there anything else that you think is important to share on this topic? It's, I think it's a, a really good, a really good opportunity and one that we're all going to, um, well, I'm going to try and hit with the the best way I can and the other thing as well is it's, it's a really sort of family team team effort with um, my sister and my mum taking the week off work themselves and actually being the support with me. How can people support you in what you're doing Jake? So we've got to just give him page where you can choose which charity you wish to donate to um, which is at justgiving.com uh, forward slash team forward slash six in six walk um, and you can follow updates and also see messages and, and updates throughout the walk um, on our Facebook page, which is uh, Jake's Six in Six. That was Jake Wood talking about the aims and preparations for the marathons he'll be walking in April. And in case you missed it, you can find mo out more about him on the Just Giving website. Now on to election news. After a boundary shake-up, there are some new constituencies in Devon. One of these is Exmouth and Exeter East. The Lib Dems announced this week they've chosen the leader of East Devon District Council Paul Arnott to stand in that new seat as their candidate at the next general election. Here he is talking to our colleague Will Goddard about why he thinks he's up to the job. What I would hope to bring is the knowledge, the deep knowledge and understanding that I've managed to gather as district uh, leader at East Devon, which covers absolutely everything from homes to economy and environment. Um, and I've dealt with those 
in the constituency, and I've dealt with them nationally as well. So I think as, as a candidate, um, I come ready with that knowledge. I understand it. I know a lot of people in the constituency. Um, I'm not the youngest candidate, um, but sometimes that's not such a bad thing. I'm not a career politician knifing his way up. Uh, I'm just there to try and do stuff for the benefit of the people of Exmouth and Exeter East. The instant focus for me will be around environment. We know there's the crisis, crisis with Southwest water, but that's not just about beaches, that's about rivers as well. We've got an absolute crisis around uh, insufficient homes, uh, particularly for younger people, but it does present as an issue for older people as well. So that's about getting stuck into the planning system and about trying to get new social housing uh, going. And I know that East Devon, that is a priority for us already. Um, it's about continuing the good work on the economy uh, because actually it's thriving, I think, largely due to the work of the District Council. You know, we have the Enterprise Zone and that's working very well. Um, and then finally, it's about working to protect the NHS, which does seem to be coming under consistent attack from the government, tragically. Um, and to me, the main thing is, you know, I know Boris Johnson apparently didn't he say I want to be king of the world or something when he was a child. I, I don't want to be king of the world. I don't expect to be king of the world, but I do want to be a constituency MP. The new seat will be formed from much of the old East Devon seat, an area which has voted Tory since before Queen Victoria came to the throne and parts of Exeter, which has been held by Labour since Tony Blair first came to power in 1997. But Paul Arnott believes he has a realistic chance of winning. Claire Wright, who got over 40% of the vote in 2019 in East Devon and left the Tories with a small majority of 6,700, has given him her backing. It's going to be interesting, isn't it, this uh, coming election? Is. I love that line um, which Will came up with, that the areas voted Tory since before Queen Victoria came yeah. to the throne. Yeah. Um, but now, I mean, everything's in play now, isn't it, with the new constituency? I think so, yeah. It's, it's going to be a, an interesting time for local politics, I think. When do you reckon the general election's going to be? <laughs> well, I was going to say October, but you're you going to say... Right. You're going to say that, I feel you? like May. I feel like it could be May. There are elections planned for May already, aren't there? Exeter City Council, I believe, has some elections in May. Yeah. The Police and Crime Commissioner election is in May. So yeah, if you have the right. general election on the same day, you could save some money for the councils. And that's important, isn't it? That is important, especially yeah. important at yeah. the moment. But uh, yeah, well, my money's on May. You're going for October, well, so okay. it'll probably be June then when it something <laughs> like that. But let's see. Uh, our colleague Bradley Gerrard has, uh, has been at County Hall in Exeter to meet some local parents who feel they're being let down by the authorities when it comes to provision for their children. Here's Bradley. Parents and carers whose children need extra support to access education held a protest early this month to express their anger over how they're being failed by the authorities. Devon's Special Educational Needs and Disabilities, or SEND service, is under pressure as larger numbers of children are seeking support to help them at school or college. Devon Send Parents and Carers for Change is a group campaigning for an improved service and this protest marks their second in two years. Many of the protesters claimed they had been forced to battle over long periods of time to secure help their children are entitled to as the county struggles to get on top of various issues in its Send provision. An Ofsted inspection in 2022 said Devon County Council had not made sufficient progress in addressing any of the significant weaknesses identified in an earlier 2018 probe. However, the council said improvements were now being made, including the number of children waiting for Education Health and Care Plans, or EHCPs, falling significantly in recent months, 
and educational psychologists now working in over 100 schools to help identify children that might need extra help sooner. We spoke to some of the protesters about their experiences of Devon's service and what they'd like to see happen in the future. Me, I'd like, personally, this council has been classed as inadequate for five years. They've employed various directors £150,000 a year for five years who have not made any, have not put any changes in place or not made enough changes. So I would like to see the Department of Education remove the educational services from this council. I've got uh, two children with SEND, uh, special educational needs, and I spent the last 12, uh, 10, well, since my, my oldest son's 15 now, and ever since he started school, I spent the whole time uh, trying to get support in place and uh, trying to make Devon County Council fulfil their legal obligations. Uh, they blatantly break the law and nobody holds them to account. So I think as parents, um, you know, maybe doing something together gives us more of a voice because they certainly don't listen. <laughs> uh, I mean, today my son's got additional needs. Schooled in Exorbit, in an excellent area. Uh, he's been failed since reception. He's now in year 10. Um, every day, every week, every month. It's a battle um, to get him what he deserves. Uh, and when I say not what he deserves, not what I believe he's entitled to, what law, what legislation, what statutes say he's legally entitled to, Devon County Council still can't do that. Quite simply, I would like them to follow the law. I would like them to follow legislation. Um, it's laid out, it's clearly defined, it's there in black and white for them to read. Pick up the white papers, read them, implement them. And if they feel they can't do that, stand down. I'm sure there's someone else in the queue who a better job. Devon said further progress continues to be made under its recently hired Director of Send Improvement, Kelly Knott, who took on the role in the summer when Councillor Lois Samuel also took on the portfolio. Furthermore, Devon is working with Essex County Council as an improvement partner to learn better ways of working. And the county has applied to the government's safety valve programme, which could provide the authority with a cash lump sum to help it tackle its SEND deficit, which is expected to hit a cumulative £162 million by April. While the council is clearly committed to making improvements, change won't happen overnight, and disquiet from parents and carers could persist for some time to come. That was Bradley Gerrard reporting from County Hall. And in a similar vein, really, Ali, you've been covering a story down in Plymouth which also deals with the care of some uh, some very vulnerable children. Yes, it does. And um, there is concern by city councillors um, over private companies making millions of pounds from the care of vulnerable children and young people. Um, Plymouth has a lack of specialised in-house residential care and relies on outside companies for complex needs placements and often at short notice. Whilst the council says as corporate parents of all the children in its care, um, they deserve the best care and their safety and well-being is paramount, the budget is under considerable pressure. The total spend on residential care placements for private companies make up about 13% of the council's overall budget. Um, that's 52 children at the average cost of £328,000 each per year. But it's not just about the cost of the council. Cabinet Member for Children's Services, Jemima Lang, says there needs to be more transparency about the fees charged. With collective profits to the 20 largest private companies of up to 300 million being reported, the council has written to the government over the issue. Councillor Lang tells us more. 
Well, our average residential placement costs £6,733.54 pence a week, which equates to £328,719 a year, which is an eye-watering amount of money. Um, and our most expensive residential placement is over £17,000 a week, um, which is made up of various elements. There's a social care element, obviously education, and, and also therapeutic elements. So it is a lot of money. There's no question that these children and young people shouldn't be getting the care that they're receiving. Um, but there is a question over, over what it costs authorities. And if people are making significant profits from these kind of placements, then I think that's, that's not right. And I'm talking generally as a national picture. You know, we have some really good providers in Plymouth and actually some of placement costs are lower than they are in other places in the country. For me, the conversation is around significant profits from these places. And the competition, you know, I I'm not the only person saying this, the Competition and Markets Authority said it when they did uh, an investigation into this market in 2022. They said that the profits that were being made were in excess of what you expect for a market that was functioning properly. How much profit are they making? Well. In some cases, you know, up 20%. And um, again, the LGA commissioned a report into this last year and they found that the top 10 providers made £300 million in profit last year. And I just don't think that that is... I don't think it's ethical. And more practically, I don't think it's sustainable for local authority budgets. You know, they are um, in the news at the moment. All the time we're hearing about councils who are submitting their 114 notices which means effectively they're going bankrupt and a lot of what they're spending their money on is children's placements and and the reason I brought the motion to council was because we can do things in Plymouth around this we can really try and negotiate more around what we're paying we're looking at opening our own provision so bringing some of that work back in-house so we have more control over the cost over which child goes where, more Plymouth provision, keeping more Plymouth children in Plymouth, which is always what we want. Um, but I really feel there has to be a national conversation about this issue because if the government don't step in in some way, and they know about this, like I say, there was the Competition and Markets Authority report, the Local Government Authority report, there was Josh McAllister's um, care review, which made this issue very clear. If something isn't done... All local authorities eventually are going to be saying this is unaffordable for all the other things we want to do in our cities, towns, wherever. We can't because so much of our budgets are going on these placements. And there are ways of doing it across the world and, in fact, in the UK where profit isn't part of providing um, social care for children. And do you expect to see more children coming through the system that are going to need that sort of care? I think, I think that's difficult to predict. Um, you know, we do forward plan and we do look at the, the children coming into our care. And, but actually, what's really important, again, if we weren't spending so much money on this end of the system, as it were, we would be able to be investing so much more in early care and mm. early help. And that's where you can have the most impact 
and you can possibly stop a child coming into care and all the ramifications for them and their life most importantly but all then the attendant costs that come with that so those are the things we need to do we need to up our early help we need to look at providing our own provision but that's only going to help to a certain degree we need the government to get a grip of this and think of alternative ways of people providing the care that's needed there's no question about that but doing it in a way that doesn't have such an impact on local authority budgets. That was Plymouth Councillor Jemima Lang talking about one of the pressures facing the council right now. Um, just to add some national context there, the Local Government Association says the number of placements costing £10,000 or more per week has risen from 120 to 1510 in the last five years. Um, for in Plymouth, that's gone from 0 to 16. So you can see the pressures there are and children's services in general um, really causing a lot of strain on councils right now, aren't they? Well, absolutely. And, and it's interesting when you talk to local councils, it's been budget time. The meetings that we've been to for the last month have all been budget meetings. Mm. And all of our councils in Devon, as far as I can see, have all managed to balance budgets. They've all managed to avoid the dreaded Section 114. Yeah. But everyone that I've spoken to says wait till next year we've got problems coming next year there's kind of storm clouds coming for next year yeah, yeah. with Every, various parts of the budget that's true everyone is, everyone is concerned about that but um in in plymouth and devon um both in the past week they've put extra funds into the budget next year for children's services um in in plymouth there's an extra 12 million um and in devon there's a 10 percent rise in that so um they are looking at hopefully trying to source you know to to contain that within the budget but you know it is it is always a little worrying about that i mean devon county council 79 percent uh, of their budget is shared between adult social care and children's services mm. so you can see how little there is left really for everything else and highways is a big issue for local residents but they're so, just probably not all going to get their potholes that's very in. true fascinating stuff um, Ali, you had some sad news from Torridge District Council this week as well. Yeah, yeah, some very sad news. Um, Councillor Peter Christie um, died this week. He was one of the leading lights at Torridge District Council. Uh, Peter was a lovely man, a fountain of knowledge about Biddeford. Uh, he was a town councillor for 40 years, serving as mayor three times and a district councillor for 30 years. I only knew Peter for eight months, really, since I've been covering the council but he was one of those councillors who was instantly quotable always having something worthwhile to say um, he was often light-hearted but always well-meaning and totally committed to being a councillor he was always happy to help if you needed more information clarification or some audio for the podcast <laughs> um, always happy to stay behind a council meeting and, and, and just give you a few extra quotes um, he was one of the great characters on the council and I think he's going to leave a really big void there Every council needs a Peter Christie, doesn't it? And it some of them have got does. them. Some of them have got these these councillors who who just put the community absolutely put the community first, yeah, don't they? Yeah, it is absolutely their life. I think he was one of those councillors. I mean, he did lots of other things as well. I mean, he was a, you know, he ran a bookshop and uh, he wrote articles for the local papers on history every week. Yeah. Um, but you know, he he was he always had something, you know. To get involved with there uh, with Biddeford and the people of Biddeford and um, you know was always fighting their corner. 
There we go. Well, thank you very much for your company, uh, everybody out there. I hope we've made your dog walk or your drive to work or wherever you've got us. I had a message from somebody who listened to us in the bath. I'm just really? gonna, I'm just going to leave I'm going to leave that out there with you here just as a thought. You can find Devoncast of course on the Radio X website or wherever you usually find your podcasts and if you do that there uh, be sure to subscribe then you can get the next one the minute it drops and you can listen to all the old ones including chats with the prime minister the archbishop of canterbury and we had a brilliant bloke on the last one who documents mid devon's trials and tribulations trying to get a decent broadband signal he was great uh, and contact us uh, suggest things we should be talking about complain anything you like we're always here we're happy to hear from you and we're at news at radiox.co.uk contact us anytime we're here to listen thanks for listening we'll see you next time bye Catch the latest episode of Devoncast every Friday at radiox.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.